the Kona thing and the Ironman thing, it, it, it like it, it becomes very close to an obsession. You know, it becomes such a huge part of your your life and, and your identity that you can really get carried away with it. You can do that at the expense of a lot of other things in your life. You know, your your marriage and, and your business and, and your job and all those things. I I have to say that there's plenty of times that I do that. The head goes down and the blinkers go on and I can't see anything except for I need to get this session done and I need to do that training. It's probably one of my strengths, but it's probably also a big weakness. Welcome to you all for our 22nd episode of the Hardest Nails podcast, proudly brought to you by Outsider.ie, Eyelids Adventure Magazine. My name's Kevin. Great to have you join us once again. Thanks so much for downloading and listening to the podcast, which is sponsored by Follow the Camino, the original walking holiday experts. Now, Follow the Camino, they've been helping pilgrims to walk, horse ride, even cycle along the famous Camino de Santiago pilgrimage routes in Spain for over a decade now. Airport transfers, the very best accommodation, meals and luggage transfer it's all taken care of with their custom itinerary created just for you so that all you have to do is enjoy your adventure to the fullest go visit their website now www.followthecamino.com now our guest for this episode is a serious triathlete he works in the industry and of course partakes in the sport he's also a fantastic coach having assisted many people from different athletic backgrounds to help them reach their goals of one day qualifying for Kona have the pleasure of speaking to Rob Cummins. Rob, thank you for chatting with us on the Hardest Nails podcast. It's an honor. Thanks very much for having me on, Kevin. It's a pleasure. Now, Rob, it's been about 15 years now since uh, you first discovered triathlon. Before you got to the point at which you are now today, what sort of background did you have growing up? Were you sporty at all? No, not at all. Uh, I never did any sport as a as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I was, I was very much a, a problem child. Uh, started smoking when I was about 12 or 13 uh, and got into trouble with drinking and all that sort of stuff as a teenager so I never did any sport at all uh, until until I stopped smoking as an adult um, I smoked for probably about 13 or 14 years uh, stopped in my mid to late 20s and at, at the time that I, I stopped smoking I was I was smoking about three packets of cigarettes a day, about 60 cigarettes a day. Uh, I was very unhealthy uh, and unfit and and had never, never done any sport. But I, I used to, there was there was a guy locally, I used to see him riding his bike and, and I always liked the idea of it. I always wanted to do some sort of sport, but I'd never, never done anything at all. Mm. So was there a specific moment then for you, Rob, you say these years of being a heavy smoker, was there a moment that turned that all around and you decided to give it all up? I, well, I suppose I, I tried to, to try, tried to stop smoking uh, dozens and dozens of times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd, I'd get off them maybe for a couple of hours or a couple of days, and I think once or twice probably for a couple of weeks or months. But I always ended up going back on them. The thing that, that did it for me eventually was I, I went into a, a bookshop on uh, just after Christmas, uh, trying to find a way of giving up smoking. I went in looking for a, a book to, to help me do it. And I, I found a book called uh, The Only Way to Stop Smoking by a guy called Alan Carr. Mm. And I, I started reading that. I tried everything else. I tried nicotine patches and nicotine gum and none of that stuff worked. So I, I don't know why I thought a book would work, but I, I went and bought the book and, and started reading it. And it, it, it worked. It completely changed my mindset. And mm. I read it over a couple of months and and stopped smoking 
uh, on the 17th of March uh, 1999 hmm. was the, the day I had a, the last cigarette. So or the day I became a, a non-smoker. And that incredible journey began there in 1999 and uh, you got fit, you got healthy, you started being more active. So when did you realize that you were somewhat had this ability to push yourself further than most could and, and actually complete a, a triathlon? Oh, I, I, I didn't didn't realize that for years. Mm-hmm. Um I suppose that the first time I came across triathlon was, was when I was still a smoker. I, I came down one Sunday morning with a bad hangover and stuck on the television, lit up a cigarette, and, and uh, the Hawaii Ironman was on. And it was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. I couldn't believe that people could do it. I, I, I couldn't believe that the numbers they were talking about, the, the, the distance of the swim and, and the bike and then running a marathon, and that they do it all in one day when, when they when they were talking about it initially I thought they must be doing it over three days or something <laughs> so I, I had no concept of, of what a triathlon was or mm. anything like that when I stopped smoking I, I bought a mountain bike uh, I I'd opened a, a bike shop about seven or eight months before and I, I bought myself a mountain bike mm. as a, an incentive to, to stay off cigarettes you know to try and get healthy so the guy that was working for me at the time uh, brought me out mountain biking and eventually brought me out to a, a mountain bike race where I, I I managed to finish it, but came last. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any. It's it's not like I I stopped smoking and bought a bike and discovered I had this talent. Yeah. I didn't. I I don't have any particular talent. I'm not genetically gifted or anything like that. Mm. Um, I I raced bikes for a couple of years, starting off at the the basic level and and worked my way up to to a mid pack level. Um, at a, what they call sport category, which would be. The, the third category from the top. So again, I was nowhere near the, the elite guys ahead of me. And in 2003, uh, a South African friend of mine, actually, uh, he was living in, in Ireland at the time, had been at me for a while to, to go and do a triathlon. And I eventually gave in and trained for the Dublin City Triathlon in 2003 and mm. went and did that with a, a guy called Greg. I, I was second last out of the water. Uh, I got on the bike and because I had a few years of bike racing in my legs, I, I rode through the field and I, I got off the bike, I think, in the top 10 wow. and then was promptly passed by everybody on the run. <laughs> I think I finished 70th or 80th. So again, there wasn't any any talent there. Mm. Um, and uh, But I, I loved the sport. Mm. I, I loved the idea that even though I was finishing mid-pack and, and you know, maybe 40 or 50 minutes after the winner, there was still people standing around the finish line mm-hmm. and cheering and, and supporting you. So I loved how inclusive the sport was. And I gradually got into it more and more over the next two or three years. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I had a go at my first Ironman in 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did Ironman France in 2008. And again, I, I didn't really know how to train for it other than I went out and did a long bike and a long run every week. And I went and, and did that one. And uh, and again, there wasn't any talent there. and There wasn't any ability there. I finished 950th or something like that out of maybe 12 or 1300 that year. Um, but I loved it. Absolutely mm. loved it. I couldn't believe that the day itself and, and the, the discipline and the the training, I, I just completely fell in love with the sport. Mm. Yeah, there's a bit of that natural transition there you're busy speaking of going from triathlons. It took you a bit of time, about five years to get to Ironman eventually. Doing the French Ironman, right. was that your first one, Rob? And, and what moment from that experience stands out still with you to this day? Uh, yeah, that was my first Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the when I look back on it, the, 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 the biggest takeaway for me from, from Ironman France, before I'd done it, um, 
for anyone that hasn't done an Ironman or that's that's thinking about doing one and you're reading about it, you know, people talk about it being a life-changing experience and I, I really wanted this life-changing experience. Mm-hmm. I thought this was, you know, I was going into it. I wanted to change my life. I wanted this epiphany, you know. Mm-hmm. And I crossed the line and I was waiting for the epiphany and days later the epiphany still didn't come and I was disappointed. <laughs> I sort of thought, okay, it was about two weeks later maybe I was I was starting to get the itch back to go and train and to do mm-hmm. another race and and the the penny dropped for me that the the, the life changing aspect of Ironman wasn't the day itself and it wasn't crossing the finish line. Mm-hmm. The life changing aspect was the fact that I'd become an athlete mm-hmm. and I'd I'd learned to love the training and the discipline and and all of the things that were involved in in training for an Ironman. And I think that was the big life changing moment for me with with the first Ironman. Was a couple of weeks later was realizing how much I loved. Mm. Just love the whole lifestyle of it and, and the the discipline and the training and everything yeah. and uh, and that I think was the the biggest change for me and also the the fact that when I was standing on the start line of Ironman France I didn't know if I was going to finish it mm. I didn't know if I could finish it and I was going in to this almost impossible mm. and go so and you do something that you think is impossible or, or very very difficult and when you see that it changes the way you think about things. Mm-hmm. So you're you're maybe more willing to try things that maybe looked like they were impossible. So I certainly came out of it thinking about things differently and mm. feeling very differently about myself as a, a person and an athlete. Mm. What I find so remarkable about your story is is how you found yourself a coach to train you. And in, in the space of just four months, you went from barely breaking it into the top 1,000 at an event to finishing in 36th place overall at the UK Ironman in 2010. Absolutely incredible. What was it about the coaching you received that made such an astonishing difference to your performance on race day? I, I, I suppose that the, the story of the coach was we, we approached a, a former Ironman, professional Ironman uh, racer who, who was coaching um, at the time and asked him, would he, did he think that I could qualify? And he, he said that he didn't think so. Mm-hmm. And if I could, then it was maybe a very long chance, maybe a two-year project or something like that. He'd seen me race locally. He knew I wasn't fast, you know. Um, I was quite disappointed at that because Ashling had thought that it was a great idea. My wife, when I said it to her, she said, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's go do it. Mm. Um, so when I said it to the coach and he said, no, I, I was quite disappointed. Um, so I asked him, well, do you know how to coach somebody to get them to Kona? And he says, yeah, of course I do. And I says, well, give me that plan. I says, I'll take responsibility for it. If you break me, it's my fault. You know, I'll, I'll take responsibility. If it doesn't work, that's okay. Um, and he sort of reluctantly took me on, I think. I'd said it to him and I'd agreed at the time that I would do anything he said. I would do whatever he said I had to do, whether it was huge volume or whether it was work less or whatever I had to stop doing in order to fit the training and I, I said I'd do it. So the, the the first thing that he did was he, he increased my training load hugely, mm-hmm. which would normally be a very risky thing to do. And it, it, it was a very risky thing to do, I suppose, you know, but I'd said that I was taking responsibility for it. So he increased my training load hugely. I went from training maybe six or eight hours a week. The first eight days training with him was close to 30 hours. Wow. Now, I, I couldn't sustain that because I didn't have the background, but that was the biggest part of it was increasing the training hugely. And what had happened was I'd last three or four weeks maybe, and then I'd fall apart and I'd, I wouldn't be able to train. I'd hardly be able to function for four or five days or a week. Mm. And then I'd, I'd be able to get going again. And I might have another three or four or five weeks where I'd be able to get decent volume. But it was very much pushing the limits hugely mm. in, a, in a very, probably in a, in a risky way in terms of 
it was either going to work or it wasn't going to work. He wasn't going to make me sick or anything like that. But, mm-hmm. you know, he was pushing me so hard that I couldn't train. You know, I was constantly pushing my limits. So I'd be able to train and then I'd fall apart and then I'd train and I'd fall apart. But I think the fact that I, I worked much less for a number of months mm-hmm. um, and and I, I was I was just determined. I, I think it was, for me, it wasn't necessarily, the, again, there was no magic talent there. I was just lucky enough that it was a, a time in my life where I was able to work a little bit less mm. and I was able to put a huge amount of time into it and I had a, a lot of support from Ashling. Mm. Um, and it meant that I could... I could train much more. I did two big training camps during that period as well. So it really just came down, for me initially, it came down to training volume. But it it was a very risky way of doing it because we accelerated everything massively. Hmm. Very interesting. And you speak about pushing the limits from a physical point of view there, Rob. And how much, though, did your mindset have to change in order to allow yourself to believe that you could achieve these incredible results? I, I didn't believe it. I think a lot of people don't understand that. I, I wanted to do something that I'd never done before. Um, and I, I'd be out riding the bike and I'd be daydreaming about it, but it didn't feel like me. Um, it'd be like me, you know, when I'm in the pool tomorrow, visualizing the way Michael Phelps swims. You know, I might be able to visualize it and I might be able to, you know, think that I'm moving like him, but I'm never going to be Michael Phelps. And it doesn't matter how much you visualize something. You don't, you don't believe something that's completely beyond your reality. And for me if I'm just barely breaking into the top 1,000, mm-hmm. I don't I don't feel like a fast person. And I never did feel like a fast person and I didn't really believe it. But Ashling believed I could and I sort of committed to it because, funny enough, at the time, I contacted the Outsider magazine and mm-hmm. uh, they agreed to carry uh, a series of articles with me documenting this, this journey. I think Roisin maybe felt a bit sorry for me at the time and thought, yeah, we'll <laughs> carry this and see how he gets on, but it'll be entertaining if nothing else. <laughs> but, I sort of committed to it publicly and said that I'm going to try this. I, I never believed that the first moment that I actually believed that I could do what I set out to do was during Ironman UK, five months after we started. And I'd gotten out of the swim and gotten on the bike and I was near the end of the bike and I'd been constantly moving through the field on the bike and I'd started catching some of the female pros and near the end of the bike, I passed who I thought was the lead female pro. She, when I when I recognised her as I was going past, I knew she'd gone in as the race favourite, and I thought at that stage she was in in the lead of the race. As it turns out, she wasn't, but I thought she was, mm-hmm. and that was the first moment that I believed I could actually do it because I I realised that I was there. I was I was up racing right at the very front of the field. I was up racing with the top female pros. I was starting to catch the male pros, and I was in the in the fastest end of the age groupers. But that was the first time I believed in it. Mm. So I didn't need to believe it to do it. Mm. I just needed to be willing to go out and, and do the work. And the belief for me came afterwards. You know, when, when, when I left UK that day or the, the next day, I felt like a fast person and I believed I was a fast person. Mm-hmm. But I didn't feel like that for the five months leading into it. And I didn't really believe I could do it. Mm-hmm. But I always say to people, just because, just because you don't feel it in your stomach or just because you don't believe it doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Mm-hmm. You know, you can go out and you can do the work. And for Ironman, it's just an awful lot of work. If you're willing to go out and put in a huge amount of work and you've got a life that allows you to do that, you can improve hugely. Mm-hmm. It's not like, you know, you don't need to be born six foot six with gigantic feet to be a hugely successful swimmer. Mm-hmm. Ironman rewards an awful lot of work the way a lot of sports don't. So I was very lucky that I chose a sport that, you know, 
you could get away with not being genetically gifted or talented yeah. that it just rewards somebody who likes training mm. well speaking of the hard work Rob and also having the right coach it, it all paid off eventually I mean in 2012 and 2013 you did Ironman UK and both times you qualified and then went on to race Kona how much of a relief was it to qualify for that prestigious Ironman World Championship and then obviously the realisation that you had to do another Ironman yeah the, the realisation that I had to go and race again was, mm. was funny uh, I don't think that penny dropped until I actually qualified oh it was a huge relief mm. because I, I think it had been it had been going on for 18 months at that stage so it was it was a long time walking towards it and uh, and I suppose you put a lot of pressure on yourself to, to achieve something Um and, and there was a huge desire to, to do it, you know. Um, I, I'd, I'd seen Kona years and years before, and I, I, I really wanted it. It was this huge dream. So there was a, a big relief when I finally achieved it. Mm. Um, and, and like you said, uh, it was a, a bit of a penny dropping moment when I realized, geez, I need to start training straight away again <laughs> and, and get stuck into another Ironman. Mm. And, and how do you approach a race like Kona, knowing that the level of competition is not just taking one step up, it's, but it's a massive step? Uh, the first time I went out very much just to enjoy the experience and, mm-hmm. and to try and learn about it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second time I went out, I went out more to try and, certainly to try and improve the first one. But I think with a race like Kona, for an athlete, when you go to Kona, there's, there's, there's two types of athletes. There's athletes that have the talent and do all the training, and then there's athletes like me that just get there off the back of hard work and don't necessarily have all those huge genetic engines and things like that. Mm. So for someone like me to perform well in Kona would take a number of years probably three, four, five years before I'd be able to be competitive in Kona. So the second year, I was starting to see the possibilities that, okay, I, I think on year three or maybe year four, I could be, I could be getting more competitive. But mm. I think for someone like me, it would be a, a multiple-year project to try and be competitive in Kona. The, the first year was just the experience. The second year was to try and improve. If I go out a third time or a fourth time, I think that's when you'd maybe start to look at Mm. trying to be more competitive in your age group. For somebody like me, it would, anyway. Yeah. Now, for you, Rob, what is it about Kona which is the most difficult to overcome? Is it the way you execute your plan to tackle it, the conditions? What is it? Oh, it's the conditions. Uh-huh. It's, it's the heat and the humidity. And I suppose a big part of it is having the self-control to, to not race before you should. Um, if, you, if you race too early or if you go too hard too early in Kona, it's so difficult to recover because the conditions are so hard. The heat is so intense and the humidity is so intense that if you push too hard and, and blow up, you can't cool down, you can't recover. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the first time, it was the heat that got me the first time. I, I pushed a little bit too hard uh, quite early on in the run and I, I just completely blew up. But I couldn't recover. Mm-hmm. I couldn't just slow down and, and recover and go again the way you might do if you push too hard in it early in a race where it's a, it's a normal temperature but in Kona once you overheat it's it's close to 40 degrees and it's close to 100% humidity so wow. if you if you tip yourself over the edge you just can't cool down you can't recover and that for me was the hardest part of it was learning how to cope with that mm. heat and humidity and the conditions and and that's, I think, the most difficult part for most people. Mm. Such an interesting insight. And unfortunately, though, Rob, early 2014, you required spinal surgery, which uh, put you out for about 18 months, if I'm not mistaken. Was it difficult to get back into yeah. doing Ironman events after that? Yeah, I think I went back and did one. I went back and did two quick succession uh, in about 18 months later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I really wasn't fit enough for them. Uh, I, and 
I didn't I didn't enjoy it insofar as I, I remembered being fit mm. and I went back and I did two races and I wasn't fit and, and I, I I was going in maybe with the expectations of being able to go much quicker than, than I actually did so I, I was quite annoyed with myself and I promised myself that if I was going to do another one I was going to prepare properly for it the way I had done before I, I hugely underestimated how difficult it would be to, to, to get into shape again coming back from, from that, that mm. break after the surgery uh, it probably took two years to, to get back to, to a similar level to what I was at mm-hmm. um, whereas the, the first time it, it seemed to happen much quicker but I, I suppose a big part of that was I wasn't willing to drop as many other balls in my life mm-hmm. to, to focus on, on training I wasn't willing to train 30 hours a week for mm-hmm. six months uh, I wasn't willing to sacrifice as much from the business or to ask as much from Ashling to allow me to do that so it, it, it just took longer I think to, to get fit and to come back after it the second time for, mm. for a number of reasons coming back from a, a big injury takes time and, and then like I said it, it was it was different circumstances life wise so mm. it's, it's been a, a while coming back yeah and during your recovery though how, how did you cope mentally with all of it was it difficult psychologically to, to get through that period well I suppose yes and no mm-hmm. um, no insofar as when the back went it was bad enough that I there was times when I thought I'd never be able to do anything again mm. I, I didn't think I'd be able to swim bike or run again the back the, the injury was that bad so once I was able to do anything there was a huge sense of satisfaction with just getting out and riding the bike and mm. it didn't matter if I was slow or fast or anything else or if I could only ride for 30 minutes I just I was just happy to be outdoors and not not horizontal in the bed mm. so there was a massive amount of satisfaction to be able to get out and, and, and train again mm-hmm. Um when I started to train and I realized it was all coming back much slower, I suppose that was when it became very difficult to deal with. The, I remember being fitter, I remember being faster. I remember being able to train much harder. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, everything was happening much slower. Mm-hmm. Everything was taking much longer. I, I, I physically couldn't handle the training the way I had done before. It took me much longer before the body would allow me train as much. So there was certainly frustrations, but I think it was mostly outweighed with the fact that I, I just loved the training mm-hmm. and I was very thankful that I was able to do it again mm-hmm. because at times when when the back went, I didn't I didn't know if I would be able to. Extremely frustrating. I can only imagine it being in that position, Rob. Now, over the years of, of, of doing a number of Ironmans and taking on Kona, which would you say of the three disciplines is your strongest and which is your weakest? Uh, the swim is, is certainly my weakest. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm in decent shape, I'm probably equally good on the bike and the run. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I probably would have come into the sport with a, a stronger biking background, but in Ironman, and probably only in Ironman, I tend to run quite well off the bike. I, I run much better off an Ironman bike than I do off any other distance. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a reasonable bike runner, I suppose, but a weak swimmer. Mm-hmm. And luckily enough, you can, for, for a lot of the races that I like doing, the hillier, harder races, mm-hmm. you can get away with not having a, a super strong swim. Mm. Now, as I mentioned at the start, Rob, of the podcast, you are also an Ironman and triathlon coach. And you also firm believe in the idea that the best way to learn uh, something quickly is to learn from someone who's done what you, you want to do. What is it about coaching other athletes you enjoy the most? The, the biggest satisfaction is, is seeing somebody on race day having a really good result mm-hmm. um, and by a good result I don't necessarily mean a really fast time but 
teaching somebody how to race properly and seeing them getting the most out of themselves on race day because you can't you can't necessarily go into a race and, and only take your satisfaction from hitting a number or from hitting a placing because you don't know who's going to show up on, on race day and you don't know what the conditions are going to be but yeah. you can you can always take satisfaction with how well you race and how hard you race and how honestly you race so I think for me for myself and Ashling um, we, my wife, we both coached together. Ashling would have been the coach initially, and and I, I got involved with her coaching afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably the biggest thing she's taught me is 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 to take satisfaction from how well you race on on the day. And I think when you teach that to people, and when you teach them how to race, and, and they have a good day, that's the biggest sense of satisfaction for me. And it doesn't matter if they're a fast person or if if, it, if they're if it's their first Ironman. In fact, we we tend to lean much more towards coaching uh, beginners or, or fairly new athletes we get a much bigger sense of satisfaction there because you're you're teaching people something they don't know how to do and, mm. and they get a huge kick out of their first Ironman or their second one you know mm. well your coaching has uh, done you well you've got your own uh, business called tricoach.ie who's involved and how do you go about assisting athletes looking to take things to the next level uh, it's just myself and Ashley my wife do mm-hmm. the coaching mm-hmm. uh, we keep the numbers quite small because we 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 do a fairly, it's 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 all one on one, so it's weekly plans with the athletes and phone calls and emails and, and text messages. Um, so there, there tends to be quite a lot of contact. We're very old school in the way we coach. Mm-hmm. We don't use power on the bike, limited amounts of heart rate. We we teach people how to train on perceived effort and how to race on perceived effort. That's how how both of us train and race for the most part, which sort of goes counter to the way a lot of people coach or, or think it should be done but it's mm. it's worked very well for me and it was the way I was taught how to train and race and, and I found it more effective than anything else. Wonderful. Well, one would imagine though, Rob, when it comes to coaching someone, you formulate a training schedule for that person, they do the work and they improve but we all know it's more to it than just that. How do you help a person get rid of their psychological demons to get them in a positive frame of mind so that they can get that belief which plays a massive role, especially on race day? A lot of that comes from from getting the training done. Mm-hmm. Um, a huge amount of an athlete's confidence comes from doing the right type of training. And some athletes never get rid of that nervousness. Like there's some guys that we, we coach and, and they'll carry that nervousness right into the race and and even through the race. And mm-hmm. With, with those guys, you're trying to get inside their head and, and give them something to... For example, there's, there's a one of the things that I find very useful in racing when things get very difficult is when you're racing for yourself or for a number, mm-hmm. when it starts to hurt, it, it can be very difficult to hurt yourself if all you're racing for is a number. If you're looking for a sub-12 or a sub-11 or a sub-10 or whatever the number is, mm-hmm. that number doesn't have a whole lot of meaning when you're in an awful lot of pain on the bike or on the run. If it's something that's just for you. For me, I can't get to the start line of an Ironman without Ashling's support and Ashling's help and Ashling's coaching. Mm-hmm. And the staff in the business here in, in our, our, our bike store who allow me take extra time off the train. There's a lot of people behind me allow me to train and allow me to do what I do. So when it starts to hurt, for me, it's much better to be accountable to them, mm-hmm. knowing that there's people tracking me online or Ashling is standing at the side of the course watching me race. And if I give up, I'm really saying that actually I don't value your input that much. Mm-hmm. So for me, I want to be able to stand there at the end of the race or the next day and say, I gave it absolutely everything. There wasn't one single minute that I quit mm-hmm. or that I went easy on myself because 
the input that I get from other people or the help I get from other people means that I have to give back to them. And the only way I can give back to them is to train and to race. Mm. And the only way I can say I value what you're doing for me is to race as honestly and as hard as I can all the way and to not go easy on myself and not mm. get soft and not say, oh, well, maybe I'll just hurt myself a little bit less. <laughs> and if you race hard, and, and again, if you can get that into your head on race day, and, and for this athlete that, that he, he'd be nervy, similar to myself, he'd be nervous right up to, to the race, but he just kept on thinking about his wife had put himself there, had put him there, she'd helped him, she'd looked after the kids and she'd given him time for training and the lads in work had given him time off work and mm. there was other people and as long as he kept himself accountable to them, it stopped him from focusing on how much he was hurting and it made him work that much harder and mm. he had his best race off that, off making himself accountable to other people. Amazing. Now, someone that might be listening to this episode, Rob, and might want to get into the sport of triathlon, Ironman, go on to do Kona. What's the best piece of advice that, that you could give to that sort of person? Enter a race. Um, put the gun to your head. Once you've done that, once you've put that gun to your head and, and you've made the commitment to do the race, go and get some advice from, from a mentor or a club or a coach and uh, and, and just start. Mm. The, 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 the biggest impediment to most people doing it is, is the fear of starting and certainly for me it took a long time before I, I, I started but I think you you don't need to know how to do it and you don't need to know that you can do it mm. you don't need any of those things to start you just need to start you need to get up in the morning and train and you need to enter a race and you just start taking steps towards whatever the goal is so if it's a half Ironman or an Olympic distance or an Ironman mm. you just start taking steps towards it and, you know, if you don't know what those steps are, you, you do some research or you read a book or you, you, you talk to somebody in a club. There's plenty of resources out there for people. But I think the, the most important thing is just take that first step. Yeah, you're so right. That fear of starting often holds so many people back. Rob, apart from your coaching company, you also run a bike and triathlon store in Dublin, which uh, keeps you very busy. I'm interested to know how you are able to find the time and are able to divide it up between work, your your personal training, spending time with the family. How do you fit it all together to make a balanced sort of life? Oh, I don't think there is a balance. <laughs> I think uh, I think Ironman is a very imbalanced sport, um, mm. and working for yourselves is is just equally as imbalanced. Um, I think for for us, the balance probably comes in that um, myself and Ashling do everything together. So we run the, the bike shop together, we coach together. Mm. Um, we don't train together as much as we used to, but for, for a long time, we, we trained all the time together. So we, we swam and ran and biked together. So mm. that was how we spent time together was the sport and the business. Um, and our kids are grown up, so that's one less draw on our time, I suppose, that a lot of people our age would have. Uh, our kids are, are grown up and they're adults now, so they require much less looking after um, it's more rescuing they need it in their 20s than, than looking after but uh, it does less less of a draw on your time and mm. I think in terms of splitting time between the business and and, and the training and the racing mm. um, it, it's hard to get that balance because when me the, the Kona thing and the Ironman thing it, 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 like it, it becomes very close to an obsession you know mm. you, it, it becomes such a huge part of your, your life and, and your identity that you can really get carried away with it. You can do that to, at the expense of a lot of other things in your life, you know, your, your marriage and, and your business and, and your job and all those things. I'd, I'd have to say that there's plenty of times that I do that, mm. that, you know, the head goes down and the blinkers go on and I can't see anything except for I need to get this session done and I need to do that training. And, 
and a part of that I think is is probably one of my strengths mm-hmm. in that I'd be very single minded and, and pig headed. Mm-hmm. But it's probably also a big weakness in that it helps hugely when things get difficult and training is hard to just get stuff done. But it also means that you're a little bit blinded to the effect that the way you're training and and, and living affects other people or the business. Mm. Um, and I suppose I've just learned to accept that, that the business is going to move up and down and mm-hmm. the training is going to move up and down. As the business needs more time, I give it more time and I train a bit less. And mm-hmm. when the business is quieter, I, I, I put more energy into training. Mm-hmm. But I, I know that if I'm in a really heavy training block, the business will suffer. Mm-hmm. And it's just a decision that you make. Mm-hmm. Am I willing to allow business to drop off for three or four or six months? And if the answer is no, then well, then you don't train as much. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's very much a case of we make a decision that the sort of lifestyle we want to live is, is training and racing and, uh, and the business is there to, to support the lifestyle that we live. Mm, a lot of give and take, it sounds like it, Rob, in, in your life. Yeah. You try and encompass all those different areas. Now, our listeners, though, that have been enjoying this podcast so far, if they want to find out more about uh, Rob Cummins, they can easily just go and get your book titled Chasing Kona. Why did you feel the need to share your amazing story with others? And was it difficult to share some of these experiences, Rob, which perhaps left you vulnerable? Yeah, you've done your homework, Kevin. Um, <laughs> I wrote the book mostly when I'd had the back surgery. I was two months in bed after the back surgery, so I had a lot of time on my hands. So I wrote most of it then, and I, I did feel really vulnerable writing the book because I put a lot of stuff in there that that certainly made me feel very vulnerable and felt very personal. Um, but I didn't really want to just tell a story of the numbers. You know, I'd out on the road for four hours, and then I did a one-hour run, and then I did this, and then I did that. Mm. I always think that a story is much more interesting if you know how somebody feels about it or how it affects them and how, you know, so I wanted to try and put as much of me into the book as possible. Um, I'd been writing for The Outsider and uh, I'd been writing uh, a blog for a number of years. Mm. So I, I, I really enjoyed the writing um, and I suppose that was why I, I wanted to do the book. It was in the back of my head to, to do it for a long time and I had the time after the back operation. Uh, as it happened, I, I wrote most of it and, and left it sit there for a couple of years before I, I finally got the nerve to, to let it out into the world. So it it was released last year in December. So mm. it took a while. Well, with Christmas coming up, it's a perfect stocking filler for, for any uh, aspiring triathlete and even the professional ones out there looking for a good read. Lastly, Rob, what's the goal for you going forward now? Is competing in Kona as many times as possible the target? What are you working towards and when do you hope to achieve it? I think I'm going to take a slightly different approach to the next couple of races. Mm-hmm. Um, I still want to be as competitive in race as well as I can, but I'm not necessarily going to pick race just because I think they suit me or they allow me to get to Kona. Um, there's races I want to do that I don't think will necessarily suit my strengths, um, but I, I want to do them. And I don't always want to go and pick races like Ironman UK or Wales that I think will suit me because they're hard hilly bikes and they're or cooler conditions like I want to race Lanzarote and then Lanzarote next mm. um, which probably doesn't suit me in terms of it's a, a sea swim and it's it's very hot conditions but I've always wanted to do it so I'm, I'm, I think the next few races I'm going to go and pick the race that I've always wanted to do and do those and, and see if I can learn how to race more difficult races mm. better um, I think the likes of Lanzarote are also a much more honest race so there's less drafting and that sort of thing that you get in the flatter races so I think I'm going to pick a few races like that so Ironman Lanzarote will be the next one 
and, and possibly after that one of the uh, the extreme races like uh, Alaska Man or Norseman. Oh wow, sounds absolutely phenomenal. Well Rob, it's been such a privilege getting an insight into your life as a, a determined triathlete and a wonderful coach to others. Thank you for speaking with us on the Hardest Nails podcast and we wish you all the best for what lies ahead. That's my pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you.